If I were a teen detective, I'd have groovy purple velvet bell-bottoms, a high black turtleneck natch, and a little whisker of a moustache. My hair would be a wavy totem that sits atop my head with a big swoop that hits right above my enormous glasses. And I'd track down smugglers by revealing their system of hiding communiques in old stone walls, have close calls down by the broken water wheel, and rely on my best pal Thelonious, who is a crow that delivers shiny objects to me just in the nick of time. If they made a TV cartoon about my life, one episode would be called Dance of the Seven Dales and would feature a doozy of a chase sequence inside a funhouse mirror. Can't you just picture it? Well, friends, while I dream of being animated and young again, others dream of high adventure, scouring secluded corners of the world for treasure and mystery. But tonight on the show, we're talking to a friend of the program who has spent the last several years on a global quest to track down a most unusual and unnerving kind of book, those bound in human skin. I encourage you to hang in there as we pull the hidden lever on the bookcase in front of us, revealing a darkened passageway that leads us to the deep night. Oh, friends, hello, it's me, Dale Shiver, and I'm so happy to be your haunted host, ghoulish guru, and spooky shaman for this next hour of regrets and revelations we call the Deep Night. Now, we come to you tonight, as we always do, from the foul banks of the Gowanus, and, oh, the Gowani has a little film of oil across the top that's attracting great clumps of fallen leaves, reds and browns and deep ochres, the colors of autumn, the colors of life's last gasp. Fall is here, which means death is on its way. I might consider that film on the canal to be like a skin, and skin is what we're talking about on the show tonight. Now, I'm a big skin fan. I'm wearing it right now. Maybe you are, too. Friends, some of us may be rightfully a little squeamish, though, learning more about anthropodermic books, books bound in human skin. But that's the subject of the new book, Dark Archives, by our guest Megan Rosenblum. Megan's book, which I will note the copy that I have, is bound in a sturdy paper-based material. It's a wonderful read full of intrigue and history and curious collectors, an insight into early medicine and a respect for both the souls and the craft that went into the making of these strange objects. So a few words about Megan. She's the Collection Strategies Librarian at UCLA Library in Los Angeles. Megan served as a medical librarian for a number of years where she developed a keen interest in the history of medicine and rare books. She is obituary editor of the Journal of the Medical Library Association and president of the Southern California Society for the History of Medicine. Megan is also the co-founder and director of Death Salon, the event arm of the Order of the Good Death. 
and a leader in the death positive movement. Now, Megan was on our live show in Los Angeles some years back where we talked about a great number of those things, and it was a genuine thrill to welcome her back to the program to talk about uh, this book and to once again bond over our shared background growing up near Philadelphia. What is it about that place, do you think? Something in the water, perhaps, that inspires our strange curiosity. Well, it's the perfect time of year to learn more about that which might frighten us, so let's go now to my conversation with the brilliant Megan Rosenblum. Megan Rosenblum, welcome back to The Deep Night. So happy to be here, Dale. <laughs> it's so great to have you on beaming uh, into us here from your home in Los Angeles. Uh, now, uh, given uh, what you know about me and the fact that we've talked before, would you consider joining a new commune I'm starting? <laughs> well, it depends on if it's like the commune that um, I wrote about in my book, uh, The Book Farm. Um, oh, oh, yes. Yeah, there was a bookseller in the uh, in the early 20th century who tried to get a commune going called the Book Farm, and yes. uh, trying to get a bunch of bibliophiles, public, you know, intellectuals, librarians to try to all go live on a commune farm together in uh, in the South, but uh, no one ended up agreeing to to move there, and I think it might be partially because the um, the the guy the bookseller was uh he was known for walking around the grounds uh without any clothes on yep yep that's that happens here in this commune too i'm afraid but uh uh it sounds like a maybe uh, from from <laughs> if we can get a few more books around maybe i can, can I, tempt you <laughs> i feel like if uh it's turtleneck uh only if we yes. have to wear turtlenecks yes then i then i feel like i'm on board Okay, good. Like a that's turtleneck a... uniform. <laughs> yeah, no, that is that is understood. <laughs> that is right. And uh, as long as you're good with a chore wheel, uh, we'll be fine. That's terrific. Okay, well, uh, we'll, we'll send you some paperwork about that uh, because I do think a person of your skills and attention to detail uh, will be helpful. So uh, now, first of all, let's let's set the scene here a little bit because when you were last on, we were talking about your involvement with an organization that you're a part of called the Order of the Good Death. And so just to re remind me what that is and remind the listener what that is. Sure. So the order, the order of the Good Death is a online collective of academics, artists, writers, death professionals like morticians and death doulas and people who are all work, doing interesting work around the idea of sort of facing your mortality and giving people, arming people with choice and knowledge around death and dying. Yes, and it's still going strong. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and building, I'm sure. Uh, I read Caitlin's book, uh, From Here to Eternity. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Yeah, she has yeah. three yes. books all out, uh, all yeah. New York Times bestsellers, so believe for Caitlin. And, yes. uh, yeah, and she's working on the next one, I believe. So uh, Caitlin Doty uh, is a mortician, and um, she she started the order and is, is our, you know, is our, our main... Uh, leader. Yes. And then uh, we've got a lot of folks who are working in all different kinds of areas. But I could tell that the death positive movement, as, as she coined it, and as it's come to be known, was really starting to get legs when 
people started describing their work as death positive outside of the friends that we had or the people we knew where now I'm seeing, you know, video games that are death positive and things like that, which is so exciting. It's been injected out there into the vernacular, which is a good thing, I imagine. And uh, certainly uh, that book made me want to be buried with a, you know, want to have a funeral pyre, you know, out in a canyon somewhere. So that was <laughs> my, one of my takeaways from that. I also read uh, Lindsay Fitzharris's book uh, about Dr. Lister, which I had no idea, of course, about the advent of, um, you know, how to combat germs in the medical uh, environments and certain what are you, operating theaters and that kind of thing. Uh, and I had no idea that that would help me to really give me an understanding of some of the parts of your book as well and the kind of medical environment uh, in which you're, uh, some of the parts of which you're talking about. Now, uh, let's get to the thing that we're, we're kind of skirting around uh, because when you were last on that last time, I said, hey, what are you working on next? And you said, well, I, I've got a project going involving looking for uh, books and they were very special and rare. That's right. So I've been um, I've been researching the history of books bound in human skin, uh, also known as anthropodermic bibliophagy. Um, Yeah. yeah. And and both Caitlin and Lindsay blurbed my book, actually. So (laughs) that's great. Really good connection you made there. Yes. Yes. In addition to two of my other heroes, Mary Roach and Eric Larson. Uh, terrific, terrific. There's, that's a good uh, team to have on your side, for sure. If you uh, like those authors, then I feel like my book is for you. My book is not for everyone, <laughs> for sure, but it's extremely for some people. And if you're yes. a fan of those four, then I think you're you're in good hands there. And when I heard you were working on a book about books covered in human skin, I said, by gosh, we got to have you back on uh, when that comes out. And, and now here we are. The book is called Dark Archives, uh, and uh, it's out. When is it coming out? It's out October 20th, 10-20-2020. Oh, auspicious. <laughs> That's good. And um, uh, before we really get into the, the content of the book, uh, which I read cover to cover as soon as it arrived, um, uh, the, this cover, though, in, in paper, not uh, anything else as far as I know, um, but I thought it would be important to just have a wee bit of understanding of the kind of person who might be drawn to this subject matter. So would that be okay to talk about, th- talk about that? Because first of all, uh, is it okay? <laughs> <laughs> to talk about me, you mean? Yeah, yes. And how I got interested in... Yes. In- it's, yes, it's funny. I get asked that question a lot because I think I don't... I don't necessarily appear like some, you know, ghoul hiding <laughs> who would be who would be very, um, you know, interested in, in trolling around in in scary places looking for books bound in human skin. Um, well, I would also say I don't have a picture of somebody who would be <laughs> crawling around looking for that. So I, I'm not sure. I didn't know anybody was looking for it. To be honest, that's true. Yeah, I think a lot of people um, have this image at least of the people maybe not the people who study these books because people don't think anything of the, of someone who would do that i guess but uh the people who make them i think they tend to think hannibal lecter or you know uh, right um ed gein or something like that uh but skin the, the enthusiasts tr- right the truth is actually almost more disturbing in that it uh they were mostly made by doctors in the 19th century who were you know 
reasonably well respected in their fields and not some sort of abhorrent, you know, creep in a basement somewhere. Um, I am often a creep in a basement, but a library basement, which is a little less creepy. Um, yes, a little different, isn't it? Yeah. But, but now it's quite early in the season, but I understand you have a Halloween tree up now. I do. So I knew it was going to be a busy season uh, with a book coming out and everything. And I've got a toddler and it's pandemic times and all timelines have been completely thrown out the window. So I was trying to think, okay, how can I try to make Halloween fun? Because I'm in Los Angeles and trick-or-treating is not happening for sure. And that, that kind of breaks my heart. And especially because she's now, you know, almost four, she would really be super down for trick-or-treating. So I was trying to think of ways to make the season fun and make it as long as possible so that I would have time to do things like bake spooky cookies or something like that with her. Uh, I see. I see. So there's not a separate tradition of the Halloween tree that I was unaware of. No, although now it's becoming a thing. uh, It's spreading around my friend group in the Order of the Good Death because I have a Halloween tree. And then I saw Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris uh, put up a Halloween tree. And then I saw uh, Annabelle uh, uh, DeVetten Peterson, is it? I can't believe I just blanked on her name because she's the best. So uh, my friend Annabelle, uh, she just moved to... Burbank over here yes. from, from uh, the UK, and she is an absolute evil genius when it comes to cakes. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Annabelle DeVetten-Peterson, she's the uh, kitchen conjurer, and she makes these hyper-realistic spooky cakes. Um, and, you know, the whole cake meme of, of things looking like something and then it turns out to be cake she was way ahead on that (laughs) and and she actually even did a full body-sized um hannibal (laughs) for for their rap party one time Um, yeah so she has a so now she has a halloween tree so it's kind of spreading and um with my uh i only came up with the idea because i thought okay i have a fake white christmas tree because I live in the valley, so I just leaned into it, right? We have, like, the colored (laughs) lights and, you know, just really fake and great. And then it turned out that I had a ton of spooky ornaments already, including Mm -hmm. a fake human skin book ornament in the traditional kind of glass ornament style from Evil Dead. So (laughs) it actually wasn't that hard to put together. All I had to do was get orange lights instead of the multicolor ones, and poof, Halloween tree, here we are. I see. I see. So you get a little sense of uh, <laughs> of who you are there, uh, because I remember talking to I, I think our mutual friend Colin Dickey, uh, uh, who had talked to me about Christmas being originally a, a time for telling of ghost stories and gathering around a fire. And so I wondered if you had just kind of uh, uh, extricated some piece of it, or kind of merged the two, or separated the two in some fashion. But uh, I'm glad you're making it your own, and now you're you're again, seeding a new uh, tradition out there, which is wonderful. And yeah, my toddler and I were reading our first chapter book for uh, at bedtime. So this is our first time of a continuation of a story. And it's Ray Bradbury, hometown hero here in Los Angeles, uh, Ray ba- Bradbury's Halloween Tree. Aha! Okay. All the strands coming together. Well, uh, speaking of hometowns, you grew up as I did uh, near Philadelphia, in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I grew up yeah. in Delaware County. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Delco. 
There it is. <laughs> um, I did have that accent forever. It was not easy to to work that accent out. It still comes out when I'm tired or have had a few. Um, yeah. But yeah, I grew up in Delaware County and went moved to Philadelphia 15 minutes away for for undergrad for school, and I lived there until 2009 when I moved to Los Angeles. So. I got it. See, for me, it's towel. Towel. Whenever I ask for a towel, it comes out. There's a couple of words where, yes, if I have a little bit, sometimes water and and towel. Uh, but anyhow. Uh, and I your can follow- say water. I can say water when I ask yeah. for water. But if we're talking about the uh, Italian ice kind of thing, it's water ice. It cannot oh. be water ice. That's- yeah. No. We, we, we agree. <laughs> That's right. Now, and your father was in the trades as as mine was as well. We also have that in common. Yeah, he uh, he's a union carpenter. Yes, as was mine. That we're proud uh, union children, aren't we? I am in a union now. I, I think I am too. I'm a union <laughs> librarian, uh, which I was so excited when the union was like, "Let's meet with you," because I just switched um, libraries. I was at University of Southern California for a long time, and yes. then I just started with UCLA, and their librarians are union. And when they had to meet with the union. Uh, they were, you know, trying to give me the pitch and I'm just like, just take off my money, please. <laughs> like, I'm team union. Let's do this. Well, that's great. And there's something wonderful about, especially with uh, carpenters, uh, uh, that uh, you go through the city and you can say, I built that. Or, or, you know, my father built that. My father worked on that. I remember doing the railings there or the stairway there. There's something about becoming part of it uh, that's so wonderful and knowing those stories. And then I imagine for you, somebody who likes to peel apart those stories and to find out all the the people that were involved in the making of things must be terribly uh, fascinating to you. That's a really insightful uh, way to, to look at it because I am um, sort of seated in this idea of craft. Um, I'm a knitter. I make things. You know, I love like physicality of objects. And so it was especially through this whole project and this process of getting to know how trying to learn really how these books were physically made, how books in general were physically made, what might have been different making human skin books. Not that much, really, except for the sourcing whole sourcing thing but um you know i was i was vegan for 12 years and i went to a leather tannery (laughs) a stark leather tannery and ruined my sneakers and (laughs) you know had this um disgusting but totally fascinating experience getting to know what it really takes to make something like i've taken a few kind of book binding courses just little small workshop things over the years out of interest and and it always just sort of blew my mind that books are like how much goes into them, how many people could have touched them at one point, but also that it's just there's a simplicity, like knowing that a hardcover book, that the cover is really just paper and paper and paper and paper, <laughs> you know, that is like the pressed, super pressed paper that's sort of the cardboardy thing in the middle and then the paper covering the outside and a different kind of paper covering this side. And it just, I just thinking about all the little bits that go into something like that, I think are really fascinating. And I actually think that the more digital our world becomes, the more people get really invested in the physicality of, of objects as well. 
that seems to be happening. You, you find that with records and that kind of things, too, that uh, the actual uh, original object, uh, still made and manufactured, has uh, sort of taken on more value in some way. Mm -hmm. um, whether it be just monetary or, or something else. but And uh, let me ask you about the, the makers themselves. Do you find lots of these places like the tannery or, or the people that would be the, the act of binding, is it generally a, sort of a one-person operation in these things, or, or is it really like a factory? I mean, I know there are factories that bind books, but when you're talking about something that's very specialized, let's say like human skin, uh, by and large, is that by one person kind of doing it in the back, or uh, what was the setup? Yeah, I think it, um, you know, it's really hard historically to go back and find, ev like, evidence of all the individuals who worked on a certain thing. Uh, especially, there are certain parts of the process that tend to be less uh, historically codified than others, right? So, in researching some of the history of these books, I may be able to find the collector who asked for them to be created. So usually there was a pre-existing text block of a book that they deemed to be valuable or interesting for some reason. And then they got the book bound, especially in human skin. Whether that collector was a doctor themselves and they were the ones that retrieved the skin for, during a, you know, autopsy kind of process or, you know, anatomical dissection kind of process because... Uh, that was really important to how people would be able to learn medicine was doing um, dissections. And then it was usually during the dissection process of indigent patients that they would take a piece of skin and save it for later, basically, um, which is really hard for us to wrap our heads around today. But we can talk more about that later, about where, how that kind of how I've come to understand that that mindset was some, somewhat possible. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But the, uh, yeah, so it's just the, um, you know, you might get that guy. You might be able, if it was just a book collector who asked a doctor for that, you might be able to find a connection there. Uh, some binders who were, you know, very well known in terms of their artisanship might have their name on a, on a book uh, that they bound because they were you know, famous or well-known, or there might be a, a note somewhere that was bound by X famous company or something like that. But the leather tanning, usually not. Um, and a lot of the processes are really uh, apprenticeship. So it was, you know, a master tanner would teach someone else, you know, an acolyte how to do this. And they often didn't write down the steps that they used because it was just passed you know, orally. So some of the work that I did in the book was at least attempting to get a handle on some of those processes by, you know, reverse engineering that to the extent that I could. So. Right. And maybe unlike the, our experience with our fathers who maybe took great pride in saying, I built this or I made that, it maybe wasn't the kind of thing that you would say to your children, hey, you know, uh, that book that I covered, <laughs> that yeah. one's skin. Yeah, you, you'll want to check that one out if you can. Maybe, I don't know, maybe they were very proud of it. I, it seems like wouldn't be the thing that would come up. Well, I, I found very little evidence of um, people talking about doing this. Um, and a lot, it, sometimes the best stuff we have is, you know, in a book itself, it might say, I found it fitting to bind 
this book about women's health in the skin of a woman or whatever, that kind of thing, or, or this book on the soul is worth a, you know, human covering or something like that. Um, and it only gives you a teeny little taste as to what the thought process there was. But, uh, I did find one article, um, from a binder who, who was saying, Oh yeah, I've done like six of these. And, (laughs) you know, and a lot of the things that people believe in this are uh, what they believe are the way these were done or how many there were. I, most of them are wrong. And and I did this and human skin is more like this animal than that animal. And, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And he's he said, you know, you bind it in the in the normal fashion because the or you tan it in the normal fashion, you bind it in the normal fashion because he's talking to an audience of people who would know what the normal fashion was at the time and place, which is not me, right? <laughs> so then, right, right. then I have to try to figure out what is the normal fashion. Um, and and that can be the tricky part. Yes, certainly. And so it's clear how it would appeal uh, to a maker and to the, the craft that goes into it. But you also had an experience uh, early on uh, at the Mütter Museum, uh, right, uh, sort of encountering some of these books. That place, if people don't know, is a marvelous resource and just a absolute thing you have to go and see if you're in Philadelphia. Uh, uh, but uh, what was that experience like standing in front of these books? So, yeah, the first time I ever heard of or saw human skin books, I was in library school at the time. I was working for a medical publisher in, in you know, Center City, Philadelphia. And I was a, um, I was very interested in rare books, but I didn't really have access or opportunity to work with them. And at the time, uh, I was going to library school at Pitt, and it was remote, and it was one of the first, you know, big, fully remote kind of uh, library schools. So they didn't really, at the time, have a way to study rare books and whatever. So I just tried to find little ways to learn about them myself. It was always sort of self-directed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a docent at the Rosenbach Museum. So the Mütter Museum and the Rosenbach Mu- Museum are the best like two for a day that you can have. Uh, and I think they usually have a deal where you can get into one for free if you go to the other one. And the Rosenbach Museum, he was, Dr. A.S.W. Rosenbach was the bookseller to the stars in the uh, 19th century, early 20th century. And he, um, he, his buying of books from Europe built all the best American rare book collections, like the Widener uh, collection at Harvard and the Shakespeare, Folger Shakespeare Library, a lot of these in the Huntingdon, which is out here. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them, ASW was the guy making the sales, right? So it's a little house museum. Anyway, so I was doing, you know, rare book kind of, talks tours things there as a docent and one day i was i left there and walked over to the mooter just because i felt like it and i i would go there a lot because it's just a very weird awesome place it's um in this beautiful 19th century building um it's all glass and brass and you know carpet yeah just kind of you know plush carpet and things but there are just dead bodies everywhere. Um, there are just yes. pieces Gra- of people. Great carpet, n- number one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then pieces of people. Yeah, there <laughs> Medical are. Medical oddities and things. It's like a six-foot colon um, and, you know, uh, skeletons of 
dwarves and giants and people who have very uh, who have had very odd diseases. So the idea is that the Mirror Museum is um, a teaching collection for for those trying to learn medicine, where you would see something you couldn't see at bedside, right? Um, so in this collection of all these things, all these people, all these parts, um, there was just a little glass case that had uh, of a bunch of regular, normal brown books with their covers closed. And I'm thinking, why would you display a bunch of books with their covers closed? These aren't even good looking books, you know, they're not you know designed and fancy or anything like that. And then no. I read the little caption and it said that they were all bound in human skin by doctors. And I just started looking around like, is anyone seeing this? I mean, so I'm like, you know, here among all of these dead people, but I'm completely horrified by these really innocuous looking books. And then I thought, okay, this is just one of another uh, things that only the Mooner Museum has. And then when I started doing, um, I was thinking about working on a different kind of book and started researching and kind of traveling around to different libraries to see what I could see. And whenever I did, I would ask whether they had any human skin books because right around that time, and this was later after I'd become a librarian, uh, Harvard had tested their three alleged human skin books and one of them turned out to be real and it was this big kerfluffle in the library world. And so I would go around and kind of ask whether people had had any and a lot of them were like, oh yeah, you know, the campus tour guides say that we do, but I don't think it's real or blah, blah, blah. And there was just, I was surprised at how many alleged books there actually were and that they were something that people who were in the know at the institutions like knew existed, but they were you know sometimes dubious or sometimes like oh god i don't want to talk about the skin book again we have all these wonderful things why we have to talk about this um and then but it was the test that took place at harvard with a chemist uh daniel kirby that uh when i met him and talked to him and we started comparing notes and then we got interested in seeing oh well i heard about the, these ones have you talked to these this institution or that one and then you know, next thing you know, and then we got involved with um, the the curator at the Mütter, and then we got another chemist, and then we're just kind of, you know, testing human skin books to then see which ones are real. Off to the races as far as that goes. Um, well, also you bring up a, a kind of a, a great humanity to it too, because uh, you could look at those books and say, okay, let's see how many there are. Or you could look at any of those objects that are in that museum and not consider the human life that was behind it, not only the maker part of it, but the person whose skin it is or the person whose colon it is. Uh, so uh, it's a another step. I mean, I realize, do you feel like you turned a corner around that where you can enter a clinical space or or do you hold on to that other thing of like it should be a little bit uh, uncomfortable to uh, be investigating this or to uh, contemplate this yes i do think that the discomfort is important um and i think that you know one could easily well not super easily i did work pretty hard on it but one could write a book about books found in human skin and just be like ew gross look at these creepy things la 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 you know and just kind of you know not 
that was not the kind of book I was interested in. That was not the story I was, I wanted to know. What I wanted to know was like, how did these things even get made? Why would someone do that? Why would many people do this? And where possible, what can we learn about who these books were made from and what their relationships were, what the like power dynamics were, and what could they tell us about that is useful for today? Like, why is it worth keeping and preserving these objects, these like kind of horrible objects? Um, which I, you know, encountered people who did not think they should be preserved and think they should be, you know, destroyed. And I understand thinking that, but I do think that there are evidence of something that would be easy to ignore or, you know, let fade away that memory that this was something that happened for, you know, surprisingly routinely. (laughs) Um, And I think that, you know, evidence of horrible acts is is still evidence um and that it's deserves people to study it and get to learn about it and learn what it what they can tell us and what i think it tells us is that you know we gained so much in this transition from you know the sort of doctor who just had you know worked with a family or worked with a few people to this way more scientific practice of medicine through clinical medicine. But part of what happens is if you don't kind of check in with your humanity all the time and the humanity of your patients, it's really easy to develop what Foucault called the clinical gaze of looking at a person as a collection of organs or disease to be you know, cured without a person that who has family and life. And... Um, the challenge for doctors is to constantly find that balance between I need to have a certain amount of distance, clinical distance, in order to do my work. Because if I was super invested in everybody's life, then you couldn't, you know, how would you handle if you had multiple people dying in a day or something like that? Uh, But you still need to maintain enough touch with their humanity that you don't then start viewing them as objects in some way. Right, and so, right. and so, these are like a really perfect kind of example and speak to what can happen if you let that objectification go too far. What are some? What are some of the abuses that can happen? Like, what's the worst that can happen? This is pretty up there. Yeah, yes, <laughs> you end up with some rarefied object. Uh, on a shelf somewhere under a glass case, I assume, um, and which uh, does prompt the question, and forgive me, probably you get this a lot, but uh, and, and I don't mean just the physical, but what is the experience of holding one of these things? Uh, just, uh, you know, somewhere checking in between the clinical and the human and the humane, but what what, what is it like? Yeah, the first time I held one, I, well, the first time I held an alleged one. I didn't know what I was holding at the time. And then it kind of shocked me. So um, I was in rare book school. I was in California rare book school at Berkeley. And I was learning rare book cataloging, which is just a wonderful nerdy kind of thing to learn. And we had been talking about different books. And I mentioned that I was interested in these books. I would, you know, one day. And then the next day, the professor had laid out books for different books for people 
each student to, you know, collate and do all that. And so I came in and I picked mine up and started like a theory. And he's like, yeah, there's that human skin book that you asked about. I was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> I just, you know, didn't know that I would be holding one. I'm like, okay, don't freak out. Um, and it turned out that it wasn't actually real when we tested it. It turned out not to be real, but um, it was a shock. And then since then I've held, you know, more than a dozen of them uh, in, in of the real deal ones. And it's, I think that there is something that is way creepier about the fact that they don't look like some, like the Hocus Pocus book or the Evil Dead book or something. Like if it, the ones that I've seen that were fake, that looked kind of creepy, like that were say like a whitish color and you could see the follicles of where the hair used to be and they had stains and stuff. And you're like, oh, gross. That looks like a gross book. There's something wrong with this. And then you find out almost always that it's sheep. Yeah. <laughs> but which is yeah. not even an expensive, uh, expensive, you know, binding material from back then. So the the ones that you find that are, are books about uh, that are like occult books and stuff. Um, sometimes if they look like that and they have some sort of occult pedigree, they turn out to be fake. There are a lot of reasons for fakes, but that's one of them. And, um, but the real ones, truly, if you just had your bookshelf with antique books on it, bound in leather, you're, you would not be able to spot the human skin book at all. And when you hold one in your hand, it doesn't really register as anything other than the norm, unless you have that knowledge of this is a human skin book. And usually the only way you could tell that is that inside the book, someone at some point had written bound in human skin. Um, yeah. That's That was usually your only tip off. And, but I will it's quite say- quite a surprise to find inside a book, I would imagine. Right. And, um, and yeah, you know, trying to decipher when the handwriting came from, was it from when the book was created or rebound or a librarian later or owner later? At what point did someone write this? Um, but- I would say that in terms of experience, the ones that actually do creep me out are the human skin suede books. Ah, and and, and what is the quality there? That just because they're, they're softer. Yeah, it's like that rough, soft kind of weird. They there's something text like the texture of it, and then knowing that it's a human and it's suede is. For some reason, it's like grosser to me that that it actually seems more disgusting. I mean, it's really just the other side of the leather. So technically, there's nothing that different, but there's something gross about it. And uh, especially because uh, some people call that kind of binding an ooze binding, O-O-Z-E. Mm. <laughs> so it even has a gross name. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've encountered a couple of human skin ooze bindings. So that means it was this, the skin on the inside? Yeah, it's either the then... underside of leather. So if you have suede shoes, it's like the other, other yeah. side. Or sometimes it's split and then flipped. So it's <laughs> like the inside. And why is that more gross? I don't know. No, it, well, it is, uh, though, for some reason. <laughs> sure. No, no, we all have something, right? There's got to be some part of this that gives you a little tinge. I mean, I know if I were to open up my copy copy of uh, Bossy Pants uh, by <laughs> Tina Fey and, and see this was bound in human skin, it would make me cringe a little bit. It was just the giant hands on the cover that oh. were human skin, like cut out, and the rest <laughs> yeah. of it was not. Yeah, pretty gross. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It would be a um, little bit. 
I think that there's kind of a continuum of for and it's a it's individual for your comfort with human remains or animal remains and what grosses you out and what doesn't like bones versus say a taxidermied animal or a wet specimen you know i think yeah. that there's a, a line and it's everybody's wet, it's line wet is for it. me wet once we get to wet that, that's yeah. my line bones, i'm pretty uncomfortable with the wet yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> things start to smell different at that point <laughs> taxidermy i go back and forth it depends on the skill yeah 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 i'd always like to see more fun taxidermy though bigger eyes that kind of thing you know, have some have some fun with it. Who says it has to look like the animal it started out as? Oh, you know whose work is really fascinating for that is uh, there's this artist called Brooke Weston, and uh-huh. she'll take an uh, a previously taxidermied animal, and then um, create like houses and things inside of it. Oh, <laughs> and it's it's really kind of an unbelievable sort of wonderland sort of thing. So she doesn't actually, you know, kill an animal or whatever. She takes previously taxidermy animals and yes. turns them into like a fantasy universe kind of thing. Well, different. A fantasy means different things to different people, doesn't it? Uh, there are some sort of examples of bad taxidermy, though, at the uh, Venice uh, Museum of Natural History. I don't know if you've been able to go uh, there, but my goodness, they've got a couple two-headed uh, skinks and, uh, you know, some ver- just a heavy shellac hand <laughs> in there. I mean, using shellac too much. And, uh, oh, yeah. So- I've been seeing, so- like, I I went to, at, uh, in Florence on my honeymoon, as you do, I went to uh, La Spicola, where they have the anatomical Venuses, which oh. are these, like, full-sized women made out of wax that are like disemboweled basically. So you can see their internal organs and they all have these beautiful faces and they're just really amazing works of art. But on the way to the anatomical Venuses are, is some of the most unfortunate looking taxidermy I've ever seen. (laughs) And I was taking pictures of it and I felt so bad, but I was just like tears laughing at some of these like, very alarmed looking raccoons and things like that. <laughs> All right. Well, they did their best, <laughs> those early folks. Um, but uh, do you think, whether it's that kind of a thing, bad taxidermy, or whether it's uh, one of these books, uh, you kind of alluded to this early on, but do you think an object could be cursed? Hmm. Wow, that is such a good question. Because it seems to me if any candidate of an object was going to be cursed... Maybe an anthropodermic uh, book might be uh, up there. Right. Yeah. Wow. I'm not even sure how to answer this question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you already said you probably, uh, and as a librarian, I would imagine you would come down on the side of not destroying a cursed object. Right. But uh, that would certainly be my impulse, <laughs> or, or to at least uh, bury it, or, or, or to do something about uh, with it, that maybe it's best to be kept in a vault somewhere. Right. I think maybe, you know, cursing would be on, in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting how places like libraries are both... Um, you know, the font of all recorded human knowledge, but also um, 
places where a lot of lore happens in the library itself. Like, I mean, if you have ever seen a group of, you know, like a listserv, a group of librarians talking about, is, is your library haunted? Who? Lots, <laughs> lots of people, including the one I used to work at, people were very um, uh, adamant that the library was haunted and that um, they, I was told that the cleaning crew would not come clean the library at night because they thought it was haunted. So they would only come during the day, <laughs> which I didn't know was an option you could do, but apparently that was a good enough excuse to not clean at night. Okay, fine. I'm not sure how that works during COVID times, but, right. uh, you know, so. Well, here's I, a, fo here's a follow up that, uh, <laughs> do you, do you think that you're drawn to stuff that might be spooky, uh, because liking it makes it less spooky and understanding how it got made physically put together by its parts kind of takes that power away, or is it simply being uh, about being more comfortable, uh, with mortality? Well, I feel like you're my therapist right now. Um, <laughs> The, I am a, I, I am a recovering control freak for sure. So when I am anxious about something like, you know, the one's pending uh, mortality and you have no control over exactly when that's going to happen. And oh my gosh, that's so scary. Um, I, and because of my sort of general librarianly impulses from birth, then I try to learn as much as I can about things that I find frightening, that I find that information can make me be able to exercise a certain little amount of control over an uncontrollable or unknowable thing for sure. So that's, that tends to be my MO is that I, I go the route of, let me learn all I can about earthquakes. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, when they come at any time with no warning in this place that I'm not, you know, I grew up not having to worry about earthquakes, uh, but here we have them. And, you know, when I can learn about them and learn about the ways that you can prepare, then having some sort of ability to prepare helps alleviate some of that general anxiety. The same thing with um, death positivity is that, you know, knowing what your options are, all your, you know, if you want that funeral pyre, pyre, like how could you go about making that happen for yourself? And also how could you make sure that the other people in your life know so that you alleviate their anxiety by not, because they know that they're doing exactly what you wanted them to do, you know? And to me, that is greatly relieving. Like you have enough to deal with when you're dealing with grief, but if you know for sure that you followed you, you know, the ritual and the meaningful kind of steps to take to help your loved one towards the end of their life or, or with their dead body, then that's one less thing to worry about, I guess. So I, that's definitely an appealing element of it to me. And also just because the human skin book history, you know, there've been articles about it. There've been, you know, over the years, but no one's ever written a book about it before. Uh, now I know why it, co it covers like 200 years, multiple countries, <laughs> it's like as multidisciplinary as you can get. If I were an actual historian and a real historian would not touch this with a 10 foot pole because it's so broad that it's like really hard to, uh, to, you know, historians work on like very narrow 
you know, yes. areas. This could not be done that way. Um, so, but, you know, the idea that it happened to coincide with this new way of testing that could make us know something for sure that no one has ever known before. That was so exciting to me to like really have brand new information and then research the provenance of these books and try to put them together into a bigger picture was like, wow, this is something no one's done. Um, There's not much competition on the book about books bound in human skin market. (laughs) Yes. And I honestly found that quite uh, reassuring. Uh, and to have this testing that you that you're involved with, and to kind of track down these stories, knowing that there aren't more of these, <laughs> it's a little bit, uh, uh, you know, it makes me feel a little bit better about humanity. Well, I hate to um, burst your bubble, but oh no, don't don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm coming to understand is that I think there are a lot more, at least, alleged books on in private collections right uh we get emails to the anthropodermic book project on a very regular basis of people saying i think i have you know human skin book or my grandfather has this thing in his basement or you know all these kind of um and if i could if it wouldn't be a privacy violation, if I could just, you know, do a dramatic reading of some of the emails that I get, they would really blow your hair back, I think. Um, because and, and do you think that, uh, you know, I noticed the book tends to be sort of Eurocentric. Do you think there are more that are out there in uh, other countries, in Asia, throughout Africa? I mean, is this a practice that uh, really expanded much beyond this sort of gentleman doctor, uh, you know, cadaver craze and um, various murderers and <laughs> things that happen? Uh, or is it really kind of confined? I That's, that's the big question, right? So it's... Um... Maybe after the book comes out, if depending on how widely the book goes, maybe there will be suddenly from other countries, people starting to be like, oh, you know, we had these, but they were from a completely different, you know, purpose or uh, created at a different time period or for different reasons or by different folks. And that would be very interesting to hear that a bunch of people had the same idea at different times and um, especially such a strange idea. Right. Um, So I'm, I'm totally open to the, you know, possibility that these are existing in places I have not yet heard. Um, So, you know, the project just stays open and we see what we can see. And if people want to test things and we learn a little more than we knew yesterday, then that is very exciting to me. I was so excited when we got, uh, you know, when we got contacted by the Royal Library of Belgium. (laughs) And I was like, oh, Belgium? And they were like, hey, we have this, uh, we have this book. Do you want to test it? Absolutely. Yes, very much so. And so, and that book, uh. I cannot wait to learn more about that. I haven't had a chance yet to really get into it, but it's on, um, where is it? It's an essay. Uh, my quick head translation is essay on the, um, on the like dangers of sepulchers. Oh. So it's actually a death related book and that's news. Like that's, <laughs> that's different. I mean, we have some that are like the dance, dance of death. We have a couple dance of death, uh, human skin books that's more on the nose i would say but the that this one 
very interested to learn more about it, but I just haven't quite got there yet. <laughs> well, you're going to have some interesting emails. Uh, I'm sure you already do. <laughs> but once the book comes out, <laughs> that'll be uh, something to go through, I'm sure. Uh, and I do want to say, I think it is uh, almost like you're doing a mitzvah for these uh, individuals uh, whose souls uh, were there, where, whose skin is uh, represented on those books to kind of uh, carry through their story and tell their story and so much that you can find it and uh, track it down and present it. Um, at least they're not being lost to time entirely uh, and that you can honor them in this way. I think it's uh, a good thing. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Thus far, I feel like I wasn't sure how people would react to this, right? Because, you know, usually if I'm at a Back when we could go to parties and things, if you know, someone's like, "What's your bo book about?" I always kind of take a deep breath, like, "Here we go. This is either going to be, you know, someone's going to be like, oh, I, someone's calling me over there and like run away from me, or they'll be like super fascinated and whatever. It's kind of one or the other. Um, but you know, some people are just so disgusted with the idea and um, that it their disgust kind of transfers to me like, ew, why would you even want to know about this stuff or, <laughs> or anything like that? Like you must also be a, you know, creep or whatever for caring about it. Um, but I am really gratified that the people thus far who read it seem to have really gotten what I was going for, which is, is more of a, you know, yes, these books are very disturbing and but they can tell us a lot about a complicated story about about our past, about the uh, past of clinical medicine. And um, and that I really care about the humanity of the people who are involved and trying to understand how we could get to, you know, a place where where these things could be created. Um, so, you know, some of the book because, you know, I mentioned Mary Roach before um, when she came through with the blurb. That was, like, amazing. But um, she, you know, some of it has a bit of a Mary Roachy kind of vibe, you know, plucky librarian running around, uh, you know, trying to discover things about human skin books. But uh, I wrote the book that way because I felt like you needed a guide through all of these countries and time periods and huge, huge, you know, issues. Um but that, and so I wanted it to not be all doom and gloom. And so there are parts that I think are relatively funny, but the joke is always on me. It's never making fun of people that were, you know, you know, abused or anything like that. But, you know, sometimes it's funny when you get surprised by something or ruin your shoes or something. So that, yes. that just to kind of keep people being able to keep going and get the important messages. I tried to, you know, make it humanizing by me being your guide. You yes, know? yes. Well, we're always thankful for a little humor uh, <laughs> to give perspective or get us through something. So uh, it's uh, really wonderful and a great, uh, a great job with it. So thank you so much. Um, and uh, people can uh, get it October 20th. People can pre-order it uh, now everywhere. And I imagine you're going to be doing some virtual shinings and events and things. Yeah, yeah, and for sure. So I have a special arrangement with our local indie um, Skylight Books that if you want to pre-order or order through them, you get a really cool book plate, uh, signed book plate um, by a Order of the Good Death artist, Landis Blair, uh, when I gave him 
the, you know, uh, idea of what I wanted. I said, give me goth Nancy, Nancy Drew. And I think he really came through on that. (laughs) And, uh, so it's a really cool book plate and, uh, you yeah, you can get that. If you're international, I'm working something out with a, with another place to be able to ship internationally for that. And I've got a whole slew of events coming up. So on my website, meganrosenbloom.com slash events there's a whole bunch of virtual events um different entities libraries bookstores museums uh galleries and things and they're all going to be a little different so whatever one is exciting to you then then that's (laughs) the they'll float your boat if you want to pokemon catch them on all and go to every one they will all be different i promise oh like so many different uh, skin books all a little bit different aren't they <laughs> well uh, this has been so great to have you back megan thank you for giving us so much of your time uh, and uh, i hope to see you again in the real real space some someday me too thank you oh, thank you right. so much oh well the book of course is called Dark Archives, a librarian's investigation into the science and history of books bound in human skin. And it's out on October 20th, and I tell you this, it makes a great gift for somebody. I bet there's somebody in your family who would get a real kick out of that. So thanks to Megan for joining us uh, once again. Such a thrill. And get those Halloween trees up. (laughs) What are you waiting for? My goodness. And maybe give those old books on your shelf a once-over, huh? Even knowing these things exist are going to give browsing the old book section at the thrift store an extra jolt of excitement, won't it? Well, that will do uh, it for us here this week. Thank you again for all the fine birthday wishes. We had a lovely time upstate at our annual retreat, safe and socially distanced beneath the stars and around the fire. And owing to a surplus of apple cider donuts, this morning I had apple cider donut French toast. And like most of the things we've cooked on the commune so far, I don't recommend it. We'll get there. Friends, have a wonderful week ahead, and thank you for tuning in to our frequency here in the deep night. We'll let you slip back through the passageway and back to your lives. And remember that although this night is ending, a bright new day is just ahead. Deep Night with Dale is produced and performed by James Bewley. Season theme song by Mariam Cadus of Space Moth. Season podcast icon by Philippa Beleza. Incidental music heard throughout the program by the talented roster at Howler Hills Farm in Ohio. Remember to rate and review the program on Apple Podcasts or tune in and stream the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Pandora, or Stitcher, wherever you find fine audio content. To see any of our live shows or other short videos, visit our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Radio, and follow us on Instagram at Seaver is the handle. Thanks again for listening, and remember this season to keep your portals open and at a safe distance. <laughs>